Welcome to the Productivity Show by Asian Efficiency, helping you do more and be better. And now here's your host, Zachary Sexton. Before we get started on this data-driven episode, I want to take a moment to thank our sponsors, FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the number one cloud accounting solution specifically designed for small business owners. If you are a small business owner or self-employed or a entrepreneur collecting your business's data with a poorly updated spreadsheet and no judgment, I've been there before, I'd encourage you to go get your free 30-day unrestricted, no credit card required trial of the software by going to freshbooks.com forward slash productivity. After this episode with John Johnson, I will talk about five pieces of data that you can collect with FreshBooks easily, efficiently, and it will help you make better decisions in your business. Until then, enjoy the show with every data author, John Johnson. Welcome to the Productivity Show. My name is Zachary Sexton, and today I have with me Dr. John Johnson. Welcome, John. Uh, thanks very much. Great to be here, Zachary. Hey, great to have you on. It's going to be an interesting subject. You've recently written a book called Every Data, and it talks about misinformation hidden in the little data you consume every single day. And I think it's an important topic because this is something that that I've struggled with in the past. It's, um, you know, I want to be data-driven. It's actually one of the core values at Asian Efficiency is that we have data-driven decisions, but I don't always know if the the data that I'm paying attention to and the data that I'm I'm diving into is the right information or if there is maybe a sampling size or there's, it was a correlation and causation. So I really like using data, but I'm not always 100% sure if the data that I use is accurate, either with, we were talking actually before we hit record about the quantified self, if the data that I'm using from maybe my Fitbit or um, a time tracking, how long it takes me to do a project for from a personal standpoint to even a bigger standpoint. You, you work in Washington, D.C., you, you work with a lot of people who are interested in data for politics or for business. Uh, so I wanted to start things off uh, with, uh, first, maybe you can give a, a little bit more of an introduction than I'm this guy who wrote this book. Um, and, and then my first question would be um, for just helping somebody out like me, what's a, what's a big misunderstanding that you see in the general population about data and statistics? And uh, maybe we can close that loop for, for me or that hole for me and, and people listening. Uh, great. Well, I'll, I'll do my best to close the loop. There's a, there's a lot there to unpack, but let me start with a little bit about myself. I'm a business owner in Washington, D.C. I have a firm called Edgeworth Economics, and uh, part of my day job, one of my day jobs, is uh, I am an expert witness. So my background, I have a Ph.D. in economics from MIT, and my specialization is in a field called econometrics, which is really the meshing of economics with statistics. So on a daily basis, I work the with, one class I uh, I ever failed. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I actually, well, failed that class. <laughs> right. I was on a study abroad. There was kind of excuses for it, but uh, yeah, I did not pass that one. Well, it's so it's an interesting class when it's taught right. But I must say, if if all you do is get into the minutia of the theory without any of the real exciting applications, it's just it it. I can understand where it might not be very interesting either to people. So what I like to do and the exciting part of my job is in the consulting world is I get really great unique data sets from all sorts of different companies in both litigation and consulting engagements where I get to make sense of them. And so 
one of the things you have to do is you have to find a way to translate all this data to audiences that don't really like statistics or maybe don't have a background or maybe failed econometrics, whatever it is, um, in a way that is empowering and smart because, you know, people are smart. You don't, it doesn't mean you're not smart if you don't have a background in statistics. It just means you've never learned those skills. But also in a way that is not so overly technical that you're just blinding people to what it means. And so it was out of that experience where I've testified in courts for juries, for judges, that the idea for this book, could I bring the message to a broader audience? And that's really where the idea of every data was born. So every data is about all of the little data and all of the types of things that you encounter on a daily basis that can be misleading, can be confusing, can impede your productivity. Um, and it has particular importance, I think, at this point in time because the volume of data that we are exposed to is so multiplying at an insane rate. I mean there's one study recently by IBM that says 90 percent of the world's data has been created in the last two years. And we actually cite some numbers in our book that the average American consumes about the equivalent of 34 pickup trucks worth of data every day. So that's how, how is a uh, like a megabyte all right. quantified in that sense? Is it like a little sugar cube is? All right. So, yeah. So, all right. The <laughs> What's a truckload? <laughs> right. The 34 truckloads is the equivalent of uh, 34 um, gigabytes, giga bytes, right? So uh, a megabyte is like a, a piece of paper in my giant truckload of data. <laughs> um, so it's a lot of information. And when you sort of step back and try to make sense of it, uh, it can be really confusing. So that's the, that's the premise. I think everybody knows there's a lot of information and data. You mentioned the quantified self. People have their Fitbits, their cell phones, their emails. Sometimes, you know, a photograph can be data, right? It, it's this bombarding of information. All right. So now we have all this information floating around that we're constantly trying to make sense of. How do you deal with that in a way that you aren't misled? How do you deal that in a way that you can be efficient or even productive and use it effectively? You said something very interesting when you were sort of doing the lead-in where you were talking about the fact that you were given the example of liking to think about data and be, you know, think about quantifying things, but also not always knowing, is it the right approach or is it the right data to use and the like? And that's exactly kind of, I think, a good point of departure for some of the things we talk about in our book. I think one of the big themes that I, I kind of hammer on whenever I speak about this is that as a consumer of data, and that's what we all really are, at the end of the day, we are consuming data, you have to be discerning. But the way to be discerning in part is to just start to trust your intuition a little bit more. There's no data analysis that happens in a vacuum. It's not the case that I go to some giant data set and pull out all the answers, then they just tell you, okay, um, the data tells me this, that's the end of the story. Oftentimes, it's the combination of what we know about certain institutions, what we know about how a business runs, what we know about some natural phenomenon, whatever it is that you're bringing to the table when you look at the data. And so the first thing is just to remember that nothing is in a vacuum. Each of us brings certain experiences to the table, and that's going to fundamentally shape how data is looked at, how data is presented, and the like. I think that's a good starting point because I'm always telling people you can be a better consumer of data by beginning to trust your intuition, by not being afraid to think about what are the questions you want to answer, what's the type of data you might want to look at if you're going to answer that question. None of that's about running fancy derivatives or cool econometric models. That's just about how you approach problems as a starting point. Nice. So the, the biggest misunderstanding 
possibly is that y- y- you can't do it, that this isn't something that you're, you're capable of doing. Right. I mean, I like to think that my book is empower is about empowering people to be better consumers of data. Like that's the point. I think everyone can be a better consumer. You don't have to be running cool models, you, but you can be smarter, better, make better decisions. Let me give you a few examples that maybe will sort of help put a finer point on it. As a business owner, you're confronted with all sorts of data, whether it's profitability data, it could be cost data, it could be margin data, it could be sales data, it could be personnel data. Um, you know, I run a company of about 100 people. I often have questions about things, but I don't say, well, just give me all the data. I say, I'm trying to find the best way to measure X, Y, Z. <laughs> I want to know what's going on with this particular circumstance, this particular day. Uh, Patrick, who's my COO, I say, can you give me data on this that will illuminate this particular question? So the notion of focus, when you're bombarded with so much information, it's really easy to get lost in all of these numbers and megabytes and gigabytes. But if you can really be focused about what is the discipline you want to bring to the process, I think that's sort of a first very, very good starting point for someone who's trying to be more efficient and more practical in their use of the data they confront every day. So that would be sort of first. Then there's just the fact that there's lots of simple concepts and ideas where people could be misled. So one of my favorite parts is when we talk about headlines in the news. And we talk about things like a story we saw, if you live close to a Starbucks, your house is likely to increase in value. Another one we had was um, people who eat grilled cheese have better sex lives and are better people overall. Now, both of those seemed kind of interesting to me. I like Starbucks coffee. I like grilled cheese. So I was kind of interested in them. When you actually dig a little bit deeper, though, and think about it, you kind of realize there's there's potentially some issues there with whether or not what the headlines are capturing is actually reflecting something we care about. For example, what if it's the case that Starbucks strategically places their stores in locations where houses are worth more? because they're going to charge $5 for a latte. (laughs) Well, that would imply the causality is reversed. And yet the headline tells you, if you live close to a Starbucks, your house is going to go up in value. Man, I heard a a very, very similar situation recently when it came to Whole Foods. Uh, And there was was somebody on a, a personal finance podcast that I listened to, Listen Muddy Matters, and he was a real estate investor guy. He's like, yeah, if you know... Um, where the next Whole Foods is going to be built, you should maybe invest in that area. But that's a good point. Maybe the Whole Foods has done that that in, that upfront idea is like, oh, this is trending upwards. We're going to put a Whole Foods here because it's a premium grocery store chain. Right. I mean, the the grilled cheese sex story, which is kind of a funny one, and we tried to get the publisher to name the book grilled cheese sex, which we thought it might sell more copies than every data, but they didn't go for it. Uh, but the, actually, when it turned out, we looked at that data, and what we found was it was a self-reported online dating website where people were reporting how often they had sex and whether they like grilled cheese. Well, what a terrible data source for honesty if you think about somebody's reporting things on an online dating site, right? So that just didn't seem like there was really a true relationship there. At least you had questions about it. So 
Now let's take that to the business context. How many times as a business owner do I read a story about the latest thing that's going to you know, give me a return on investment? I see it all the time in cybersecurity. Here's the newest product that's going to protect me from a data breach. What about when you're dealing with recruiting or recruiters? Oh, here's these great candidates. I'm looking at their resumes. All of these types of data can be subject to these same sorts of biases. We talk a lot in the book about the idea of cherry picking. Cherry picking is the idea where you only take the data that supports your position and you leave out the things that don't. Right. And one of our examples, which is pretty interesting, is the notion of an advertising campaign that said four out of five pediatricians preferred a certain brand of baby food. It turned out when we looked at the data that it was actually of all the pediatricians surveyed, only 12 percent had actually recommended the baby food. So how do you make the claim four out of five? Because you don't have to be really great at math. Eighty percent and 12 percent are not the same. <laughs> well, it turned out that what they actually did is they had asked first – a whole set of pediatricians, do you recommend that you should give baby food to your child? And a large number said no, so they took them all out. Then they asked them, do you recommend that a, um, a specific brand of baby food amongst the pediatricians who recommended baby food once a week? And a really large percentage didn't recommend that at all either, so they took them out. So then they were left with this tiny sample left of people and of the very specific tiny group of people that recommended a brand of baby food by name, it was true that four out of five recommended this particular brand. That's a classic example of cherry picking. Every time you see someone cite you a number, cite you a statistic, qualifies a number, you need to think to yourself, is that something that's potentially been selected to make a point, but maybe it's not the point or maybe there's something more to the story. So. If you step back and think about each of these examples, whether it's the Starbucks coffee or the grilled cheese or whether it's the baby food, looking at numbers for your business, whatever it is, each of them, the key to not being misled is what I call sort of the pause and the aha, oh, maybe the number could mean this instead. And I think that discipline of asking questions is actually really the key to being better with statistics. Wow, that's good. And you can, I don't think anybody from PNG is listening to the show. It was Gerber. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> that was very PC of you to, <laughs> to avoid naming the, the brand. Yeah, well, you know, and that's all, look, and it's all public. I mean, it's obviously, it was in a um, FTC consent decree. So it's not like it's a big secret. Um, it was from the 1990s. But the point is that that's, uh, yeah, that's, um, it's an interesting story, though, because we see these claims all the time. And, and Gerber's not the only one that makes claims like this. Uh, and and to Gerber's credit, they actually had footnotes that explained most of this when you looked at the ads uh, because I pulled them. <laughs> but there's an awful lot that don't. So, but once again, even if you didn't get into all the minutia of um, every detail I just gave you on what really was going on, knowing to look at the footnotes, knowing to think when you saw that claim, oh, I should pause. I mean, another good example. I am kind of, uh, I would call myself a real amateur fitness guy. And what I mean by that is I've never been in great shape, but I've really worked hard with a trainer the last five, six years to get in much better shape, to lose a bunch of weight, you know, and I'm still on my fitness journey. One of the things I notice all the time are these sort of nutrition studies that say, oh, if you eat five avocados a week, you know, you can lose 20 pounds. Now I'm a statistician. I know better than to believe claims like this. And yet still, I have to tell you, there's a number of times where I'm tempted to say, oh, maybe I should, uh, I'll text my trainer, hey, should I start eating five avocados a week because I saw this study? You know, and then I stop and say, wait a second, you know better. But 
even for someone like me who's indoctrinated in this, thinks about this, I can still be swayed by numbers. So you see how the power of numbers, especially when you're dealing with areas where you might have certain either beliefs or, or, or personal weaknesses or, or, or goals and aspirations and you're looking for an answer, it's easy to fall into that trap. I think that's a very important practical reality. These are the types of things we call them cognitive biases, right, where you have certain biases you bring to the table um, and that's also going to shape how you look at numbers. So the ability – it almost sounds like I'm talking about you know, self-improvement, right, because very much a part of being a good statistician is being able to step back and think, all right, how do the numbers I'm being – approached with, looked at, studying, how do I make use of them in a productive and efficient way? How do I think about them clearly? How do I not overread them so that I start doing things that are, you know, not really supported by the data? Mm -hmm. And uh, health is, and, and fitness in general, is one of those big ones. It's, you know, you need X hours of sleep, or you need this much water, or you need these supplements, or you it, it's just wrought with, with, uh, all this data, because there have been studies, but how big are the sample sizes? Or are they, like you, with a Gerber example, are they cherry picking? Um, and it, it's something that I always have uh, difficulty with. And that's that's why I especially wanted to talk with you, is because people do email the productivity show and say, hey, we want to get on. We've got all this data that proves this is the best way of doing things. And I just I don't have the bandwidth to look into it, and I don't necessarily have the uh, the, the understanding or the I don't know. I, I just don't want to bring information to people that isn't uh, that that potentially would change their actions in a in a poor way. So cognitive enhancers is another one where a lot of people have asked to come on and talk about their various supplements, or and I just like I don't know enough, and I it was sort of that gut check, it was that pause that I had that that made me maybe reconsider. Um, I don't know what to do after that all the time, but um, that that pause is good. It, you mentioned earlier, especially with your business, that you you uh, try to ask questions. You want to get answers to certain questions. Is there uh, any any tools or, or not not tools but any suggestions that you have for thinking of better questions to ask when you're presented with data yeah I, well i think there are and i think you know no look it's a little um for me this is what i've kind of dedicated my professional life to so i don't want to make it seem like it's you know i don't want to sound trite when i say this because you know of course part of it's like i've done it a lot of years so i have i have a lot of practice but i think the way I try to think about data and statistics is where am I trying to get to? If I, if I can be more concrete and focused about the end goal, I want to know about productivity on a given project because this is important for reason X, Y, Z. If I can be really clear in my thinking about what it is I'm trying to learn, then I can use the data effectively. Where I get myself and anyone gets themselves in trouble is when you're just looking at the data purely for the purposes of mining the information, hoping you're going to find some deep insight. I think that occasionally that can happen, but I think that often, you know, is also prone to finding, you know, we call them spurious correlations, random relationships that really don't mean anything. So I, I come back to data is never in a vacuum where the data came from, what people or types of things are represented in the data. What am I trying to learn from the data? And is this the right data set to even answer the question I care about? You can go through the discipline of asking yourself those questions, but you need to know what you're trying to answer first, right? So I would say the biggest tip, if it's 
I don't know if call it productivity or efficiency when you're using data, is to know and clearly define the question you want to answer. Now, you might answer that question and realize, well, that's not entirely the question. I really need the answer to something else. That's fine. But at least you brought the discipline to the exercise, which allows you to be laser focused on getting the answer as opposed to getting lost in lots of details and minutia or worse, biasing whatever you find because you weren't really clear in your thinking about what it is you wanted to do. So that might sound very simple, but it's really hard to be that disciplined. But to me, that's really the key to effective data work. And the way I usually, uh, maybe a tip for your listeners, one way I usually think I know people have, or at least I'm inclined to think they've done it right, is when they can really get to the essence of something very simply and in a very straightforward way. Now, sometimes people aren't good at explaining things, but that's no excuse. Good data work requires precision, and it's not just precision in the statistics, it's precision in the explanation. So if I can tell you something simply, straightforward, in a manner that sounds like it's really, okay, here's exactly what this means and why, that's good. If I have to tell you something and it's got 87 caveats and it's confusing and you're like, what the heck are you talking about? I'm usually like, you know what? I don't think you've thought hard enough about the data to really give me the insight I need yet. Hmm. How does that compare to the Gerber example? It seems very straightforward that four out of five pediatricians recommend Gerber Gerber food. That seems straightforward. That's simple. Or you're talking about there's are you you pause and reflect and think, oh, are there caveats and maybe look into those caveats? Well, right. Right. Because I mean so let's say we want to answer the question, how many people you know, are recommending baby food? And then we think about, okay, well, who were the people that were asked? If you looked and it actually had on the little footnote that they had asked you know, 500 pediatricians or what were they asked? What were the questions? I mean it doesn't take a lot of digging to start to poke and prod and say, oh, there's a lot more to this story than it seems. But I think what I'm talking about is when there's a systematic analysis, you want to know here's what it is, here's what it means, here's what I can learn from it. And so as you're working on these things as a, you know, as a, as a business owner, as a, a person who's just you know, working on issues in your professional life, I do think that discipline is a critical part of being able to use the data more effectively. One part of data is noticing patterns and seeing trends to see if there, there's anything that could you could look into the future and say, oh, OK, I think this is where it's going to go. So I'm going to make decisions based off of the the pattern that I'm recognizing. But it does seem like humans are just pattern-seeking machines. You're always looking. There are so many examples of humans just finding patterns and things that aren't there. How do you avoid seeing patterns that that might not be real? Well, that's a fantastic topic. Uh, I put it in the category of what to do or, or where can forecasting be a real problem for us. We actually talk about the tendency of people to look for patterns because everybody wants to understand the world around them. And so there actually is a psychological or a psychology literature on the fact that people do look for patterns and think that their own experiences um, really shape um, the world. So the first thing I always have, one of our, my favorite quotes from the book is that anecdote, the plural of anecdote is not data. All right. So the fact that I go to Starbucks this morning, get a coffee, have a fantastic day, have the best podcast ever with you, doesn't mean if I do another podcast tomorrow, I go get a cup of coffee, it's going to be the best podcast ever. Right. That, that's first. Right. That's kind of the uh, uh, obvious correlation issue. But I think when you're talking about forecasting, one of the really big things is a past has to be prologue. In other words, if it is the case that what happened in the past 
really is not going to tell me about the future because sometimes things change. I can have the best model in the world. I can forecast based on, you know, fit the data beautifully, tell you with certainty, here's, here's what the future looks like. But if something changes tomorrow that completely changes the dynamic I'm measuring, then all the forecasting of the world is kind of useless to me. We are often want certainty. So I give a good example. I talked about weather forecasting a little bit. People want to know, should I bring an umbrella to work today? So they want to know, is it going to rain tomorrow or not? Well, that's what we call a deterministic forecast, right? You've yes, no, it's going to happen. It's not going to happen. The reality, most forecasts are actually probabilistic, which means there's actually a probability of something happening. One of the, uh, Websites I follow in D.C. is called the Capital Weather Gang, and they actually list probabilities of rain or sun in different times of the day and what you can expect. And I just find that to be more useful because it actually does capture for you the reality that there's a lot of uncertainty in these predictions. It's the same when you're forecasting, whether it's financial forecasts, business forecasts, a healthy recognition of both the strengths and the weaknesses of the limitations of the potential uncertainty in forecasting exercises uh, really helps you to be a better consumer of forward-looking data. Okay. So just understanding that uh, the past is the past and that there's things uh, that, that might change. There's there's black swans. There's events that uh, completely can turn an industry on its side or turn a, a whole a belief system on its side. I'm trying to think back. It's been a few years since I read uh, read that book and, and fooled by ram- randomness by... I don't want to butcher his name, so I'll just put it in the show, no- show notes. Uh, okay. Nassim Talnib, maybe. Uh, okay. And and he's they, in that book. There are a number of different examples that talk about how. Oh yeah, this was the trend. This was the trend until something happened. Until a, a complete paradigm shift uh, made things so it di- it didn't happen. Um, so just I, I like that idea of the past is is the prologue. It, it yeah. has no indication necessarily of the future. And I mean, you just have to be careful. I'm not saying that you can never have value from forecasts and learning from past behavior, but I'm saying it's not 100% certain. There are always probabilities when we deal with statistics. There's always certain you know degrees of certainty, and we have different ways we measure these things. But what's important to know is that if you somebody presents you with a forecast, you want to know well how confident are you. What are the assumptions underneath that forecast? Um, can you give me a probability? What if this changes, right? So again, it sounds like a lot of what I'm talking about is sort of thoughtfulness, but it really is. It, it's the notion that don't go for the simple answer. Make sure you understand enough, all right? This answer is built on X, Y, Z, A, B, C. That's the key to dealing with forecasting. Um, and then that overarching, you know, do you, look, if we all had crystal balls, we could do all sorts of things. Um, there's always this, this old joke that, you know, I probably get tired of hearing, but I hear it all the time. Oh, you know, you're an economist. You've predicted, you know, six of the last three recessions. Correct. You know, <laughs> there's an element of it where we just need to be honest about what we can and can't do. And I think presenting things in a, in a kind of more, you know, thoughtful way is part of the key to that. Yeah, it doesn't always seem like the the media likes to present that thing. It's it's easier to say if you eat, you know you grill cheese, you're gonna be Don Juan between <laughs> the sheets Have a and better the, sex uh, life. the pieces of bread. Um, <laughs> so uh, it, yeah, yeah I, I can see how how that and that um, is difficult to you. Probably uh, frustrating for you. Always seeing these these 
big claims and uh, and and maybe they're not me- representing the data in the in the best way possible. It's part of the reason, and maybe we can talk about this uh, this last question I have for you before we wrap things up. Um, I have for the last probably three four years been on what uh, what Tim Ferriss calls an information diet. I used to read the New York Times every day and really follow a lot of a lot of politics, national and local and um, international. And I was um, I was actually an economics a history economics uh, major, so I really like seeing the big picture and and getting all that information. But um, I started to realize that. It, kind of to your point begin with the end in mind that none of this stuff I had much control over and and none of this uh was 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 necessarily relating to my life so I've sort of tuned out which is apparently something my generation has been doing a little bit more recently is just been like okay well there's stuff going on but it's it doesn't affect me necessarily um and I I and and I'm, I'm I guess the what I'm trying to get at is what type of data should I be seeking out? Because it does seem like the news and that short-term 24-hour cycle that um, that's on has a lot of gigabytes, many truckloads of information and analysis and conversation and um, behind the scenes and all of this stuff that I don't necessarily need to know to decide who I'm going to vote for for president in this coming election. So is there any any thought that you could leave uh, me and, and potentially our guests with on how to seek out data um, when it comes to making making decisions um, with your I guess maybe getting into politics. <laughs> I, I'm, 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 I'm basically saying a frustration that I have, and maybe you could pull a question out of that because you're better at, at getting those questions. No, I think I do. And I mean, I, maybe I'd put it this way. There is so much information. You could completely bury yourself in data, in articles, in news coverage, in radio, in podcasts, in tweets constantly. And actually, it's funny. When you started talking about this, I was thinking about my Twitter account. You know, as an author, I have a Twitter account and I have a number of followers. But when I first started dealing with Twitter a couple of years ago, I just found it so overwhelming because there's streams of information and half of it's just like completely irrelevant and I don't want to hear from these people. And then others are like really interesting. And how do you sort of begin to make sense of all of this information that's out there? So, you know, what is the discipline I try to bring to it? Look, there's no easy answers, but I think first knowing your sources and sort of beginning to understand, I mean, there's this, this balance between going to places that reinforce your own predisposed biases. I mean, it's one of the things in politics, right? If you're very right-wing, you can go to one network. If you're very left-wing, you can go to another. You can almost find the outlet that reinforces your beliefs. It's a little anathema to data, right? The notion of data is I can look at it a little bit more objectively and hopefully get something that's going to continue to push the bounds of how I think about things and the like. But so knowing sources, knowing what the potential biases and sources are, Making some choices about what it is you actually think you want to follow or what you need to follow is critical because, you know, if you're looking at every news organization every day, it's a lot of time. <laughs> it's a lot, a lot of time. Um, and so depending on what kind of question you're asking, again, you know, if I want to look for labor statistics, I go to the the actual source, the Bureau of Labor Statistics. I don't work my way through you know, the news media for those things. If I'm looking for something, you know, some other type of topic, whether it's for my business or research, you know, I really try to identify where is the expertise 
what are the credible sources, or even if I'm not 100% sure what's credible, at least I want to know what are people citing to or thinking about, and then I can at least look and start to develop something that is more informed. But you can't consume everything, and so you have to be discerning. You just want to be discerning in a way that is not biasing the sample of information you're ultimately looking at. All right. That was the question. How do you begin to, to discern? <laughs> Thank you for answering it. <laughs> I couldn't find it. Um, so uh, we, we end the podcast the same way because we've got so many experts on that it's it's interesting to, to ask these questions over and over again, see if there's any patterns. But uh, the, the three questions are book, not frog, it used to be frog, a ritual, and a tool or resource, uh, like like Evernote, potentially. So is there any book that you would want to leave us with or recommend besides, uh, oh, of course, Every Data, and we'll put that in the show notes. <laughs> Every Data? Well, yeah, you know, I thought a lot about this. What was the book that influenced me in terms of my productivity? I think it's going to surprise you, but it's probably not at all what you're expecting, but it's actually a book that's called The Last Lecture by Randy Pausch. Oh, man. Um, Yes. And, and what it, you know, it was basically a college professor who had pancreatic cancer and, uh, you know, basically gave his last lecture. And it's actually also on YouTube. You can see it. And so you might say, well, what does this book about that have to do with productivity enhancements? But in fact, one of the reasons why I liked it so much, and it's just a, a moving and, and sad story, is that it really emphasizes the notion that productivity and efficiency, in my mind, starts with setting priorities. Now, this story is about personal priorities, uh, how easy it is to get lost in the minutia of life. But for me, I actually think as someone that looks at data, that makes choices, that wants to be efficient, making sure I remember setting priorities is going to be one of the best things I can do for efficiency. But that means knowing what I value, making choices and doing the hard work. So to me, that's sort of a good reminder. But it's probably not, you know, that's not that's not where you look if one of your uh, you know, your listeners want sort of here's a productivity technique, but I actually think it's a critical message for being efficient in the way you live your life. And that's the ultimate begin with the end in mind there too. Yeah. Yes. So then you asked about, um, ritual a, uh, or a habit ritual. So ritual habit, I have a number of habits, but I think the one that actually I have, you know, I mentioned this a little bit before, but actually the ritual that has become most important to me is my time in the gym. Um, I, go to the gym with a trainer, you know, four days a week. I try to work out other days as well. But, um, and the reason why that is so good is, you know, I often struggle as a business owner to find a way to escape, whatever that escape is. And so for me, I've found that like going to the gym is a place where I can clear my head, do things. Now, again, some people don't like to work out. You know, something else I like to do is paddleboard. So when I'm on vacations, I'll go paddleboarding. Um, some people like to run. Some people like to bike. I hate running. So I don't do that. But whatever it is, that ability to find that one thing or that multiple thing where you can get a little bit of time away to yourself. You know, what do I like about the gym? Nobody calls me <laughs> because I don't answer my phone. <laughs> I don't get emails because I don't have it with me, right? So just a little bit, whatever it is to remove, that's kind of the ritual that I found really helps me to kind of get going in my day and really be more So you get that time off and then also you likely have a lot more energy the rest of the 24 hours of your day because you've put in that work. Yeah. Well, cool. Yes. Third was an app. An app. Yeah, or a tool, a reset. You know, it could be a journal yeah. or, but, but apps are, are fun. Yeah. Everyone likes to download yeah. a new app. Well, like the app that I like is called Rewire. That's the one that I use. And it's basically just a goal setting app. And all it is is I list goals, usually daily goals for me. I list daily goals that I want to accomplish. And it can be everything from I had a sa one salad today to I walked 10,000 steps to I 
worked on another chapter of my book, whatever it is, I put it in and it's just as simple as there's a little dot for every day and or you can put in a schedule like every other day. And I just, at the end of the day, plug it in. Green, I did it. Red, I didn't. And then I can look and see my progress on different goals. And it's just that simple. But I really like it a lot. It's 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 easy. It's free. <laughs> and um, it actually helps my productivity quite a bit. Nice. nice. I can't believe I haven't heard of that. I've, I've heard of so many. Uh, and I've played around with a few. I try not to play around with too many. But Rewire, I'll, we'll have to link that up. And, uh, and, and I'm going to probably check it out, too. <laughs> so, okay. All right. Great. Well, John, thank you so much. If, if people want to find out a little bit more about you and your your every data uh, expertise, where should we point them to? Yeah, I think the best place to go is my website, uh, johnhjohnsonphd.com. And that has links to the book, to my speaking. You know, I do a lot of speaking, go around the country, talk about all sorts of different things with data. Um, has a lot of my media stuff as well, some of the politics stuff I'm doing these days. So all sorts of good information there and my blog. So that's the place to find everything. All right, John. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you helping me get a hold of this. So, so all I need to do is pause, begin with the end of mine, maybe uh, work out every once in a while. That's, uh, <laughs> that's my takeaway. That's, that, there's the key to data. There you go. Great, <laughs> great talking to you. I had a lot of fun. Thanks so much. Awesome. Thanks again. I hope you got as much out of this conversation as I did. I, I went from not being so confident to really understanding what data is about, just really understanding what you are looking for, avoid some of the cherry-picking behavior, and uh, just using your, your common sense, using your gut. So I, I like that. I, I, I feel confident with that. And I promised at the top of the show that I would give you five pieces of data that FreshBooks gives small business owners to help them run their business more efficiently and more effectively. The first three are the obvious, the expenses, the income, and the outstanding invoices you have so you know what kind of money is coming into your business and what money is going out of your business. You need to know these numbers. If you're doing it back of an envelope or a spreadsheet, your bookkeeper is going to hate you. Your accountant's going to even hate you more at the end of the year. So if you have these every week and you get to know them and you get to stay on top of them, you know the pulse of your business you can see it right on the homepage of FreshBooks. They also email you once a week to let you know where you're doing in these three areas. They got graphs. It's it's very easy. A data Luddite like me had no issues understanding these numbers. Two more pieces of data that are less obvious is, one, is how fast the customers or your clients pay you. Didn't know this was an option until I went poking around this week and I went to one of the clients and it's like, oh, he they pay in this amount of time. It went to another, oh, they pay in this amount of time. So it's an interesting piece of data to have, especially if you're getting really busy and you might need to let a client or two go. Well, which one pays you the quickest? Those are the ones you might want to keep around. The last piece of data FreshBooks makes dead easy is to know how you are doing. Every time a client pays an invoice online, they ask you how likely you are to refer the business to a friend or a colleague. And this is important, especially early on, actually almost all the time in your business. If you are getting good referrals, it's the cheapest, best marketing that you can have. And you need to know if you're doing good in that area. Uh, I was a little worried about this one because I thought, oh man, do they bug them every single time you send out an, an invoice? So I gave FreshBooks a call and another data point. It took two rings before they answered and they let me know that, no, they only ask the question every six months. So in the 
keep asking them until they, they give a referral answer or not. Uh, but then they won't ask them again for a half a year. So that's, that's good to know uh, that you're not bugging people. At the top, John talked about these truckloads of information, and I think half to three quarters of the truckloads of information likely come from one source, and that source is email. I just got done reviewing an amazing video Mike Schmitz did on overcoming corporate culture of email. He used to be in this. He's got much more experience in this area, fortunately, than I do. Uh, he talks about how you can motivate change logically and emotionally. I think the emotional one actually works a little better. Uh, as control what you can and set boundaries. And if you are interested in learning more about corporate culture, you're not self-employed, you, you work for a larger organization or any sort of facet for controlling your email inbox and spending less time in it so you can spend more time outside of it enjoying life on your terms please go to the show notes this is the productivityshow.com forward slash 107 and we will have a place where you can enter your name and email to find out more about our forthcoming email course escape your inbox so until then until next productive monday please plan do review organize prioritize delegate and automate what you can Focus on your most important task. Take care of yourself. Find momentum. Move towards your ideal. Achieve anything, but not everything. Enjoy this life. Do more and be better. Thank you so much for tuning in. I can't wait to see you next week. <laughs>